Pushkin. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. I'm Ben Natafafri, host of the history show The Last Archive, and I want to tell you about a new series we're running in our feed. It's called The Deadline. Six essays written and read by Jill Lepore, the New Yorker writer, American historian, and founding host of our show. These are incredible essays on everything from the history of cryogenics to the Silicon Valley gospel of disruption. And at the end of each essay, I interview Jill about her craft as a writer. You can listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Pushkin. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. The biggest stories in this part of 2021 are really stories of politics. There were the off-season gubernatorial elections in which the Democratic governor of Virginia was surprisingly to everybody defeated, and the Democratic governor of New Jersey barely scraped by despite the fact that in New Jersey, as indeed in Virginia, Joe Biden had defeated Donald Trump handily. These issues themselves play into the question of what Joe Biden's national accomplishments are and whether anybody knows about them. And then the deeper and more sustained political issues about the depth of polarization in our politics, the rise of violence, and the long-term future of politics in the United States. What kind of a guest, you may be wondering, would be eager to talk and share views about every single element of these in the most unrestrained, direct, and colorful way possible. Who indeed but James Carville, the man who became known as one of the great political strategists of the modern era after crafting Bill Clinton's 1992 presidential victory. James started working in politics long before that, and he continued working in politics long after. He's a sought-after commentator, an analyst, a political advisor, and, in the deepest and most positive sense, a character. He says what's on his mind without fear or favor, and that makes him about the most entertaining podcast guest you could begin to imagine, in addition to having things to say that are potentially deeply significant and insightful for where we are and where we're going. James, thank you so much for being here. I want to get into the deep trends that are facing 
changing political life in our, in our country today. But I want to start off with something more local, which is the gubernatorial races, both in New Jersey, where Democrat Phil Murphy barely survived, and then Virginia, where Terry McAuliffe, the Democrat, went down. And I want to ask you what your interpretation is of those results. Well, I think it, it, it speaks to a larger issue that for reasons of, that are complex and I don't quite understand, people have become willing to believe anything about Democrats. We are immunocompromised where people mm-hmm. are, are willing to believe the most outlandish things because a, a small segment of people who associated with the Democratic Party come up with these crazy ass ideas that gain currency. And- Can we dive into that? Sure. Because I have two part answer to that. The first is Donald Trump. He taught everybody that you can assert anything and people who want to be on your side will listen to you. But that's not going to be enough here because a lot of those voters in the places you just mentioned who went Republican themselves were anti-Trump. So right. that's not quite enough. No, the other right. element has got to have something to do with the internal politics of at least the publicly facing discussion, where I do right. think that what's happened is that super prominent, especially younger voices on the left side of the party have tremendous sway in the public conversation as more right. moderate voices just say, okay, I hear you, but don't stand up and argue against that side of the party because they think, well, we have the votes anyway. We have the power in the party anyway. There's no point in wasting our energy in fighting with you publicly. Right. And what's more, you'll bring us down. So we're just not going to do that. And then when a Republican goes out and says, you have to believe this about the Democrats, the public says, okay, I guess we do believe it because you haven't been, we don't visibly see you fighting with the left wing of your party. Right. So, by the way, I'm not a modern Democrat. I'm a liberal Democrat. And I take all of these little exams online, you know, you yeah, know there's yeah. a thousand of them. And I always come out like an 8.2 or something. All right. Mm-hmm. But what I'm not is a leftist. But you got to understand it. That is part of the Democratic coalition. It's not a big part at all. All right. Not at all. But you know, I can cite you election after election in Manhattan, in New York City, in Cleveland, in New Orleans, and anywhere you want to look. And they are, in my view, and you have a lot of it in academia, to me, they're kind of silly. All right. They're not evil. They're just, I think, silly and sort of change language that people just resist and don't want to talk about. The significant part of their party is out and out evil. I mean, I mean, I mean nuttier than a fruitcake. On the Republican so, side, yeah. The yes, yes. The so suppose, yeah. You, yeah, yeah. suppose you have a, a grandchild, a, a niece, a nephew, and they come to you and they say, I'm going to work in AOC's office. I'm going to be the deputy communications person. You would, your reaction would be, well, that's fine. You, you're going to meet some interesting people or probably some of the things that you advocate and I can't go along with, but it'll be a hell of an experience. Please do it. If your niece or your grandchild comes to you and says, I'm going to work for Marjorie Taylor Greene, you jump off the bridge. Your life is over. It's not a comparable event. They're not comparable people. But the, the thing is, it gives, a, it gives the equivalence caucus. Well, yeah, you got them, but we got that. Yeah, you got some silly mm-hmm. people. We got some criminals. Okay, so there's a difference between all right, having a, a, a silly idea and storming the goddamn capital. Okay, it's two different so things. I, I could not agree with you more that we're talking about radically different things. 
one thing that really strikes me is that, you know, when I was first learning about politics, the Republican Party was self-presenting itself as moral. They called themselves moral. They had a group called the Moral Majority. And Democrats were the party of liberalism, which was a party of tolerance, where we didn't preach that we were moral and the other side was not moral. That said, a lot of the most deeply committed activists on the left of the Democratic Party, or some of them call themselves Democratic Socialists, are highly focused on a politics of morality. They think that supporters on the other side are not just wrong, but are bad. And that worldviews that they disagree with are not just wrong, but are, are evil, are racist, or are grounded in racism, or are capitalist in a way that's not excusable. And that seems to me to drive a lot of the debate in which liberal Democrats or moderate Democrats don't want to get into it. They don't want to fight over these questions. Look, look, I, I understand that, okay? It's a small part of the Democratic Party. Agreed, right? agreed. They're a big part of the culture, and they're given a, a much bigger megaphone than, than their votes deserve. They lose every freaking election. The only election they can ever win is primary in some poor old Democrat in a plus cook, plus PBI 40 district. They don't run against Republicans. All they run is their mouths, all right? That's what they're experts at. And, and people don't want to live like that. So when people live in fear, they just don't do it. I, agree I, was with that. Teaching, I, I totally I, agree with that. I, I, I was teaching at Tulane and I said, look, the only reason that I'm not inviting David Duke to speak to this class, because I just don't want the president of the university to crap a pineapple and you know, I'd I'd call it, but but philosophically, I'm an old liberal, like even Bernie Sanders, as much as I tussle with Bernie, he's the same way. There are a lot of old line ACLU, ADA Democrats that are and I'm more of a come more out of the Southern Democratic tradition, but this shit makes me uncomfortable at some level. But it, I'm not uncomfortable enough to challenge it because it'll just scream you down. I, I haven't gotten any significant pushback from a Democratic strategist, operative consultant, whatever you want to call them, saying you, you misdiagnosis, James. No. Yep. Just, yep. They're, they're, no, one, no one believes that. But I, I'm going to draw back a little bit because I'm tired of fighting with other Democrats because I think the country's on can go the wrong fucking way here. All right. This is not. A, this yeah, is that not was going to be my that was going to be my next question. Um, what is your assessment of the odds of genuine disaster in 2022 and 2024? Too high. Yeah. If you go in and you, you're having a medical test. All right. And what's the odds that you say, fuck this, I don't want it. <laughs> it's yeah. way higher than that. Okay. Yeah. If I was going in and doing a, a heart cath or something and the odds that, that I was going to die as high as if we have a, a genuine catastrophe in the United States, I'd I, I just die of a heart attack, man. Just stay away from me. Yeah. I, 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 I can't put a number on it, but it's unbelievably high. So the fear that people like me have, we're not, we're not, it's not crazy to be that afraid. No. And it's not crazy for people to say at some point, we're such a danger, we just got to stop fighting with each other. All right. And I'll, I'll be the first. I've, I've always been willing to criticize. And I think justifiably, don't get me wrong. But sometimes you got to subjugate what you really think for the greater good of the country. And I think we're entering a period like that. I really do. Well, let me ask you about that, because I, I like to say that, too. I always say, you know, when things get bad enough, we reach and recognize that we have enough in common that we have to pull together. But, you know, pandemic, national shutdown, economy through the floor, that all just happened, and it did not pull us together. 
it did not produce any kind of unification. And what's more, in some way, we got through it. I mean, I'm not saying we're all the way through it. We're not. I'm not saying we're not through it without consequences. There are consequences, but we did get through it. And so that sort of makes me wonder, what did it take? What would it take for us to actually say we got to pull together? I don't think we threw it. Right? I mean, I, we exist, and you know, the ten-year treasury is still the benchmark of the world. But I'm not sure that we threw this. I mean, we we had a, a insurrection, which is one of the great criminal acts, political criminal acts since since Fort Sumter, and we're still dealing with it. I don't think we threw it at all. In the aftermath of that insurrection, we've had a total breakdown in the capacity of our institutions to blame anybody for it. And, right. you know, we've got censure that has no effect on members of the House who are censured. Should they raise money off of it? Yeah, exactly. They me? turn around and raise money off it the next yeah. day. 43% of this country doesn't want it to get better. And I'm afraid another 8% have just checked out. <laughs> Yeah. So if that's the case, I'm not clear on what it takes to, so that the the kind of the grand talk that I I believe in of being able to find our way back to the middle, I, I'm I worry that I'm wrong. I, I do too. I'm, I'm worried that you are wrong. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I, yeah. I, I mean, I'm really worried. I'm not saying that it's going to end poorly, but I'm saying the odds of that happening are way too high. Mm-hmm. One thing that made me. Optimistic is too strong a word, but made me makes me feel positive is looking at Stacey Abrams and what she accomplished in Georgia using turnout in 2020. And I was really curious to hear your view about that. I mean, she, in her case, it's a multi-year strategy with a theory, an operation to try to bring it right. about. And at least under those election conditions, really impressive results on presidential election and then both Senate seats. I worry a little bit we're too dependent on those Senate seats. Okay. But but I want to hear what you think about that stra- the Stacey Abrams strategy and how it's been executed. So I have a lot of thoughts about that. First of all, I'm referring to a piece of academic research. The lead researcher, one of them was Theta Scopel, who's at Harvard, who yep. I knew Theta from the, from the 90s. And it basically compared Stacey in, in Georgia to, I think it was Reverend Barber in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Where, and, and this is my real issue with these leftists is, they don't want to engage in politics. They think it's like a, a a dirty business. If you're not willing to engage in politics, you're just full of shit. Mm-hmm. All right, Reverend Barber, North Carolina. He organized around idealism, and Stacy organized around politics. And mm-hmm. Like went out, campaigned for like white Democrats, bought up bills, yep. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Georgia voted blue in 2020, and North Carolina didn't. And it's it's a very compelling piece of research, and it's mm-hmm. a compelling piece of political science. I recommend it to everybody. You have to get your hands dirty, and you got to compromise, and you got to push, and you got to do this. And once you start thinking that you have to wear a condom anytime you're around politics, you, you, you've lost the game. And I think Theta's in her cohort's research showed that very demonstrably. So I have a very high opinion of politics, but. I do think one, the problem is one side, I'll go back to my central thesis, is out of their goddamn minds. Literally accepting of criminality. And the other side is caught up in what I would say is not particularly productive, almost 
theological view of the world, a, a, a zealous thing that what did they call it, the dictatorship of the proletariat? This is the dictatorship of overwhelmingly overeducated whites trying to dictate to the rest of the country something that they're not interested in buying. It, it, when you investigate this, the few people, and they're very good, they did like a 4,000 sample, it divide America into nine different subgroups, four Democratic, mm-hmm. four Republican, one independent, kind of yep. predictably. In the Democratic Party, the extreme left was like 11% of the party. It was the only majority white part of our coalition. That's fascinating. That'll tell you something. Yeah. Somebody's got to call us for what it is. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. And that is, I mean, that also fits into the Stacey Abrams approach. I mean, she won over and got turnout from black voters, not by running to the left of the, of the party, but running things back towards the center. Right. And she did also a little better around the state with the whites. You know, particularly in like northern, you know, some some of these areas, not not great. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a theory in twenty twenty that we we spent ninety million dollars in seventy seven counties uh, in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, and we actually changed the vote in those counties by depending between somewhere between three and six. That changes sea level. That changes sea level. Yep. Once the, the, they they have this sort of urban strategy that's we're going to have educated whites and BIPOC, it's idiotic. <laughs> they're just not enough. Because they're not enough. They're not enough white people. They're not enough white people of that. And they're not very strategically located. And, and by the way, the, the, the black indigenous people of color, they're becoming, if anything, slightly less democratic. And 18% of the people in this country elect 52 senators. Right. So unless you're willing to just throw the, unless the Senate doesn't count, your strategy is stupid. (laughs) That's not going to happen. Yeah. What about those proposals that I think of, frankly, as crazy to break up big Democratic states and create more states, which obviously the Republicans could retaliate with Texas at least. But when you hear that kind of thing, when I hear it, I just think crazy talk, don't waste my time. Is it, should I be more realistic about that? Yeah, you should be more. You should be worried. Uh-huh. All right. In Baton Rouge, which is where I grew up, Corville was twenty miles south of Baton Rouge. I went to college there. They just have this thing where there's this kind of white part of South Baton Rouge wants to break off from the parish because they don't want to support schools in non-white districts. I mean, it's pretty clear what the motivation is. It's, it's very popular. And you can just see as you see these polls and you, you're sure going to dismiss them, like 38% think succession. Really? Succession? Are you Wait a minute. You know, urban areas, it, you know, I grew up in Louisiana. It's always New Orleans versus the rest of the state. I cut my teeth in Pennsylvania politics. It's always Philadelphia versus the rest of the state. And, and boy, if you look at Texas, shit, 80% of the growth in Texas is all in quote, Democrat rural counties, unquote. I mean, it's all in Harris and Dallas and Tarrant and Travis and Bear and and there's everything else. And so this is a, it's a dangerous, dangerous idea that's taken more hold than I would like. We'll be right back. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. 
Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on the storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, NA member FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. I'm Ben Natafafri, host of the history show, The Last Archive. And I want to tell you about a new series we're running in our feed. It's called The Deadline. Six essays written and read by Jill Lepore, the New Yorker writer, American historian, and founding host of our show. These are incredible essays on everything from the history of cryogenics to the Silicon Valley gospel of disruption. And at the end of each essay, I interview Jill about her craft as a writer. You can listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. James, another topic I wanted to ask you about which is only obliquely related to this, is executive privilege. So you've got Steve Bannon, who's you know about as unpleasant a person as you could imagine, just been federally charged for contempt of Congress for asserting that executive privilege would protect him from having to testify with Donald Trump telling him so. And you know, as a matter of existing law, he's wrong. And presumably, if it gets to a jury, he'll be convicted. But it does raise an underlying question, which is, and you've had this experience yourself of being a close advisor of presidents. So how much should communications between the president and senior advisors continue to be protected, even when the next president says, I waive the privilege, I'm happy for the information to to come out? Well, I mean, it should be protected pretty vigorously. Mm -hmm. Okay. But criminality should not be protected. Right. Okay. That's the bright line. That's the bright line. You know, if you say, look, if we negotiate this, if, you know, this guy wants a postmaster in Sheboygan, and so we can give him the postmastership in Sheboygan and we can get his vote on that, that, that obviously should be protected to the nth degree. Yeah, I think executive privilege does have a, a, a pretty solid place in the law. Mm-hmm. But by the way, I think if, any, if, if he goes to jail to be his cellmate, you could make a good Eighth Amendment cruel and unusual punishment. Can you imagine what he smells like? Oh, my God. He had to sit in the same cell with that guy. Jesus. <laughs> He'd have people looking looking for the gas chamber. Uh, but, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not even going to touch that one, although I'd be very surprised if he sees the inside of a, of a prison. Very, very surprised, right. but not impossible. Do you think, by the way, speaking of Bannon, do you think that as a kind of intellectual father of Trumpism, because, you know, Trump himself did not invent Trumpism, that much is clear, and although... Success has a thousand fathers. It's clear that Bannon is one of them. Is he someone whose political insights, in your view, were were powerful? I mean, they're bad. I don't think there's any question about that. They're very yeah, bad. Yeah. But what, is he someone you put in the kind of short list of people who, like you, have a, the kind of political clarity and vision to see what's coming down the road? I mean, Karl Rove, 
whose politics I don't particularly care for and neither do you, I think he clearly does fall into that category. But does Steve Bannon fit in that category? I I think Bannon's genius was he saw a dormant narrative Mm -hmm. that people were just really ready to respond to. Mm -hmm. And I hate to say it, I, I hope that Bannonism is crushed, but uh, again, I'm, I, uh, I don't know. He could he could be one of the more relevant people in Next modern around. American political consulting. <laughs> yeah. I, I hate to say that, I'm not giving a guy. Yeah. Clearly, you had this kind of Thanksgiving Day table, you know, Uncle Joe spouting shit off that was a lot more popular than, than we would have yeah. liked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What do you think explains it having been dormant for as long as it was? Because that's one thing that's fascinating about it. Like you said, it's not really that new a narrative. In its essence, that's why you call it dormant. It was there all along. We just, people like like us thought to ourselves, yeah, there's Uncle Joe, but that's not how you win elections in the United States. There's certain things that you can't say, even if you're the Republican candidate running for president. You can have a whistle, dog whistle to racism, but you can't overtly be a racist. Turns out not true, right? You can say a lot of things openly, we thought you couldn't say, and not just we, but everyone in the political game thought you couldn't say openly. So why why was that? Why did we get as long a period in which these things were inappropriate to say or believed to be inappropriate to say politically as we actually got? So it, it kind of started, the observation kind of started with Lee Atwater. We said, you know, you used to be able to stand up and say blah, 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 but now you got to say busing of urban. Yeah, you need euphemisms. You, know, yeah. you need euphemisms. And what the Bannons of the world said is, no, you don't. You, you just go, you go right for the jugular. Mm-hmm. And, you, you know, the Republican Party for a long time was sort of more interested in servicing capitalism's needs. But again, yeah, I, I think that we, we, we don't speak in coded languages so much anymore. And I actually kind of like coded languages. Mm-hmm. This, this kind a, of language is dangerous. I mean, it's yeah. really dangerous because dangerous people hear it and believe it. That's a danger, and that's what Trump does. And, and look, you you could go a long way in America appealing to people's prejudices mm-hmm. and fears. And, and it's really a, if you stop and you think about it, Prop, they have an idea that they, and I hear this all the time, I hear it from family members, I hear from people I grew up with, you know, James, this is not the same country we grew up in. Mm-hmm. I said, of course it's not. <laughs> and it's not going to be the same country. Yeah. And, and there's some idea that there's some restoration. And you're right. If you're a, a white male, mm-hmm. your status in American society has been severely diminished. Yeah. People like you and I are not particularly distressed about the changes that are coming to the country, we think we're bringing a lot of people to the table that wouldn't be there before, and as opposed to relying on a, a talent pool of just college-educated white males, we have this, we're drawing on this enormously vast and increased talent pool. Yeah, we're making but the country gotta, stronger. Yeah. Right, but you got to understand that people are very fearful of that. Sure. And they think there's a way that we can go back to the old ways. That's that's what's really at work in American politics is that people like us are kind of enthusiastic about the kind of demographic changes that are happening in the United States, but there are a lot of people that are very fearful of these changes and they're extracting a price at the voting pool. Is that, this is my last sort of big picture question, 
Is that what's behind the polarization that we see at the deepest level? You know, is the polarization a story of the gradual rise of recognition by white men and a lot of white men that they're losing and things have changed? In which case, this polarization is not going to go away for a long time. Or are there some other factors going into the partisan polarization that might be reversible without a kind of battle royale where white men finally accept that things yeah. have changed? You know, God, I can't think of his name. Max, he was a, supposedly the best theoretical ph physicist not named Einstein. Max Planck? Um, yeah, Max yeah, Planck. Yeah. He said science does not triumph because it convinces its opponents. Science triumphs because its opponents eventually die. Science advances <laughs> one funeral at a time, <laughs> <Right>. okay? <laughs> right. Which I think is a pretty... <laughs> yeah. I, I, it's a depressing thing for a guy 77 <laughs> to say. <laughs> that, I, I hear but, you. But, but the truth of the matter is, if you are a, a white male, particularly an older white male, your sense of loss is real. Mm -hmm. right? and, and by the way, yeah. it's not just economic loss, it's cultural loss. There used to be TV shows made about you. There used to be yeah. movies made about you. Yeah. Yeah. You were constantly now, being told that you mattered. Yeah. Right. And it, it's a dangerous problem, but we, you know, we're in a race with, with the actuarial tables right now. Mm hmm do you think that if the court, as it seems very plausibly likely to do, overturns Roe v. Wade, that that's going to generate meaningful organizational support for Democratic candidates in a way that has any meaningful long-term success? Because they're obviously, the justices are thinking about that. And it's part of their strategic calculus. You know, if they think that they're going to, that there's going to be court packing after they do that, that's going to give them pause. But if they think that the Democrats won't get the kind of bump out of that, then they're going to vote their conscience. And in the case of more than five justices, their conscience is that Roe v. Wade should be overturned. So I think this, and I've thought it for some time and I've become more convinced. The most significant moment in modern American history was Bush v. Gore. And the reason it was, they told them they could fucking get away with anything they wanted to do. Mm -hmm. All right? They just mm -hmm. went in and just stole mm -hmm. an election right in front of you. Mm -hmm. And they did it with like a, an opinion and SCOTUS mm -hmm. and, and, and blah, blah, blah. And what did, what did the Democrats, what did the country do? Ah, well, it, it, you can see the Times and the Post and everybody. Well, the justices have spoken and yep. it, it, Gore is to be applauded for recognizing the peaceful transfer of power. Although there have been a lot of recounts of those votes that suggested that actually the, it was going to be really close that Bush would have won. But in the counties that, that, that Gore asked for, but the Florida Supreme Court was getting ready to have a statewide yeah. recount, yeah. Yeah. which would have not been close. And they knew it. Yeah. No, look, I was, they, I was there. I was a baby lawyer working for the Gore campaign. We felt we, were, we had it stolen from us, no question. Well, you did. The larger case is they suffered no political consequence. You're right. No, they and, didn't. And they, and they, they said that they, they, they... But you don't think that there is a counterargument that the right to choose is so much more visceral, immediate, and powerful than a presidential candidate, Al Gore, whom, let's be blunt, not too many people were super enthusiastic about to begin with. George W. Bush was not the George W. Bush that he came to be seen by later. Then he was the compassionate conservative. He, you know, it didn't seem like the end of the world to a lot of people. And this, I think, would seem like the end of the world to a lot of young people. It, it did not seem like the end of the world, but it kind of was. I hear you. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it, I hear you. Sometimes oh, I hear events yeah. happen in history that are not recognized at yeah, the time. No, I hear you. It, it was. Yeah. It was. 
it's, but but what they would say is they never they, they, all they are is bluster and talk. We have done nothing to when they get in and they get in and decide it's fuck these guys. They ain't gonna do anything about it. They're just gonna yeah. scream and yell when you know we're just going and we'll enforce our view of the corporatocracy in America and you know whatever it is they do. And I, I, I it's not an unreasonable view for them to have. And when I, people, I when people do, when the Democrats do go out there, if and when this happens, and try to motivate the base by saying, and women especially, by saying, we have to win back the Congress because we got to, and the presidency because we got to pack the court, which is where we're headed. They're going to have to argue for that. Do you think it has any legs, or does it have? Doesn't have any legs? Well, it, it take a, an election to do that. No, that's what I'm saying. I'm thinking, if this happens, it'll happen next summer. And so it's the 2022 right. it and 2024 elections. Yeah, but you have, you have to win the election. And what you have to run on is people's views on abortion are conflict. You know why they're not conflicted? On Roe. Yeah. All right. Roe is a 73% yeah. Yeah. deal. So if they right. overturn Roe, which there's a real probability that they will this summer. Then it, it depends on the strength of demo, of organizing and people what kind of appeals are going to make. Mm-hmm. But I do think if you, if, if a court imposes a, a solution that has 25% support in the country, the question is the depth of how much people are willing to support Roe. Is it one of these things, well, rich people can get around it. And I don't know the answer to that, but they've gotten away with a lot. And the response from people like us has been feeble. All right, it just has. Yeah, and, no, and I agree with you. The, I, and I think that I, I actually think that twenty twenty one is one of the most significant years in American history. Mm-hmm. I, I think people have a view that oh well, it's just all bogged down in partisanship and shit. Nothing happens. Man, there's a lot of shit happened in twenty twenty one, and no one has done a very good job, myself included, because I can go get a headline attacking these goofy leftists. All right. And, and everybody wants to have that conversation, but, but the country really doesn't know. This has been a pretty transformation. I mean, I, I did this. People that know this shit tell me this, like this corporate minimum tax. Mm-hmm. I never thought anything like that could have happened in this Yeah, world. it's substantial. It's substantial. It's substantial. No, the, the, accomplishments, the accomplishments so far are very meaningful accomplishments. The question is right. is anybody hearing that or is anybody noticing that? Or the larger question is anybody telling people that? No one wants to be in sales, all right? Everybody wants to be in policy. Everybody wants to be a theoretician. No one wants to go door-to-door with the pots yep. and pans, okay? Yep. <laughs> Give me a door-to-door yep. knife salesman from 1958. No, no one but Stacey Abrams. She's willing to go door-to-door. Right. Again, yeah. that, and I'll go back to you know, Theta or your show. She went out and organized. Yep. She traveled to all of these places. Yep. And she, she got her hands dirty. And... and you know, we got cabinet members that are so good, it's stunning. Try Miss Landrew. Miss mm-hmm. Landrew is the best communicator I've seen in my life, not named Bill Clinton. I promise you. I'm not just saying that because yeah. I was just supporter. Try Gina Romalto, the, the commerce secretary. Why isn't Gina's, she out Gina's there? Gina's incredible. She is incredible. amazing. Gen- yeah. Jennifer Grano. Take every person in that cabinet that has ever run for statewide office yep. and say, I want your ass out there on television. Go yep. get some bureaucrat to run the details. Get out there and sell. He's got really, he's got cabinet people and people in his administration that have world-class skills. Yeah. Get, get them out there. Yeah, and why aren't they, use, why aren't they using them? I, I, don't, I don't know. They're not using them because they're worried about 
what if Biden can't run in 2024 and Kamala uh, Harris has, sees them as competition? Who, who cares? We ain't know we're going to be here in 2024. Uh, fair enough, fair right? point. I mean, fair just point. get get out there and sell. Yeah. You know, my, my, my mother, she sold world book encyclopedias, but she never called them encyclopedias. She called them educational materials. Mm-hmm. And so she would put me on, I'd be like 13 years old. And we'd ride around South Louisiana and she says, boy, we're going to look for two things, a bass boat and a bicycle. Because that tells us two things. This house has disposable income and they have a child. Yep. Says, knock on the door. This is late 1950s, Louisiana lady come in, Miss Carl, what are you doing? She started talking about these educators. She said, James, this is the capital of Vermont. I said, Montpelier. Oh, God. And she goes, What's the capital of Oregon? Said, oh, shit, he's a genius. But how did he ever know this? <laughs> well, he, he bought these educational materials. So then they would inevitably bring the man of the house in because that was the way it was. And you know, she'd made up pitch and the guy would say, well, Ms. Carville, it seems like you're very good, but, you know, we've got school opening. Why don't you come back in four months? And she'd say, you know, sir, I, I find it interesting that you can afford a bass boat for yourself, but you can't afford educational materials for your children. And the guy was just like a pile of fucking salt, okay? He was signing anything, you know, 81% for 81 years. He just wanted to get out of there because he'd been so humiliated. In that kind of Pitch, you know that that kind of pitch always stuck with me. Yeah, all right. I, I was yeah. thought there was, and, and by the way, I thought World Book was a good product. I yeah, no, it is. She was doing good. She was selling a good product. Yeah, she was selling a good product to people. Stuff. If they and if they opened it, they learned. Yes, and, 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 and there's nothing wrong with being a pitch man. Thank you very much for pitching for all these years, for analyzing, for pitching, for calling it like it is, and for sharing your inimitable perspective. Thank you so much. Uh, all right. Well, Prof, good luck to you. Thank you. Enjoyed it. We'll be right back. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC, copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. I'm Ben Natafafri, host of the history show, The Last Archive, and I want to tell you about a new series we're running in our feed. It's called The Deadline. Six essays written and read by Jill Lepore, the New Yorker writer, American historian, and founding host of our show. These are incredible essays on everything from the history of cryogenics to the Silicon Valley gospel of disruption. And at the end of each essay, I interview Jill about her craft as a writer. You can listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When you talk to James Carville, you can't possibly agree with everything the man says. 
But you do realize that you have to take everything he says seriously, even, and in fact, especially when you may not exactly agree with it. James Carville's assessment of where we are right now in American politics is, in a sense, a story of contradictions. On the one hand, he believes, I think with good reason, that Joe Biden's accomplishments in 2021 have been meaningful, significant, and potentially long-lasting in terms of their policy effects. At the same time, he believes that the Democratic Party, the party he loves and supports, the party of coalition, is doing a terrible job of going out and selling its ideas. He holds out Stacey Abrams, whom regular listeners of the podcast know has been with us as a guest on the podcast, as the model of what good, real political engagement looks like. If we do more of what Stacey is doing, he thinks, Democrats can have future successes. Yet the threats to the fundamental structure of democracy he considers to be real ones. Trumpism, beyond just Donald Trump, he sees as a genuine, serious, fundamental threat to the capacity of the American political system to operate. He sees it as growing out of white male frustration, a decline in social status, in power, and in the share of economic life. And he says that the combination of partisan gerrymandering, the structure of the Senate, where 52 seats can be chosen by 18% of the party, plus the Electoral College, means we do face the genuine possibility that a relatively small number of Americans with Trumpist political sympathies can hijack the political process and block the access to a fair share of political power deserved by everybody else. Last, but very much not least, James has been an outspoken critic of the left wing of the Democratic Party for the specifics of its cultural politics, which he believes lose the party votes nationally. That's of a piece with his preference for pragmatism, coalition, and compromise, all of which inevitably mean giving up on a more moralized narrative of doing the right thing in American politics. In this sphere, we know the Democratic Party is just beginning to enter a period of deep introspection. What comes out of that introspection is going to have a major impact on the politics of the national election in 22 and in the presidential election of 2024 beyond. James Carville wants to be a prophet of pragmatic possibility, not a prophet of doom. But there were moments in this conversation where it sometimes sounded like he felt we should be honest about recognizing that things could go terribly wrong in the years ahead. Until the next time I speak to you, breathe deep, think deep thoughts, and if you have any hope left, have a little fun. If you're a regular listener, you know I love communicating with you here on Deep Background. I also really want that communication to run both ways. I wanna know what you think are the most important stories of the moment and what kinds of guests you think it would be useful to hear from more. So I'm opening a new channel of communication. To access it, just go to my website, noah-feldman.com. You can sign up for my newsletter and you can tell me exactly what's on your mind. Something that would be really valuable to me and I hope to you too. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Mo Laborde. Our engineer is Ben Tolliday, and our showrunner is Sophie Crane McKibben. Editorial support from Noam Osband. Theme music by Luis Guerra. At Pushkin, thanks to Mia Lobel, Julia Barton, Lydia Jean Cott, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, 
Maggie Taylor, Eric Sandler, and Jacob Weisberg. You can find me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. I also write a column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at Bloomberg.com Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to Bloomberg.com podcasts. And if you liked what you heard today, please write a review or tell a friend. This is Deep Background. I'm Ben Natafafri, host of the history show, The Last Archive. And I want to tell you about a new series we're running in our feed. It's called The Deadline. Six essays written and read by Jill Lepore, the New Yorker writer, American historian, and founding host of our show. These are incredible essays on everything from the history of cryogenics to the Silicon Valley gospel of disruption. And at the end of each essay, I interview Jill about her craft as a writer. You can listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.